Good afternoon. Welcome in once again. Jimmy B and TC on the air with you here for the next two hours as we talk the world of sports on 1700 KBGG. Glad you could join us here today as we get closer and closer, inching our way to get to college football Saturday. We're getting there, folks. It's been a long week. Alas, you got Thursday pretty much wrapped up. Coming up today, we're going to hear from former Iowa Hawkeye tight end Brandon Myers had an opportunity to talk with him. We'll talk about his NFL career, what led him to the University of Iowa, and those outstanding tight ends in the Hawkeye program. Brandon Myers is going to join us coming up here in just a little bit. In fact, a couple minutes we'll get to him a little bit earlier today. Zuba Mahente, little replay from yesterday. If you missed it, he'll be by later on in hour number one, then hour two during the five o'clock hour. We got a lot set up. Big Ten football talk with Ken Silverstein. We'll break down Iowa, Wisconsin. We'll look at Nebraska, Michigan. Next week, Penn State, Ohio State, and a whole lot more coming your way. Ken Silverstein will be by as he is on a Thursday. And also, we'll get the Badger perspective. I'm literally looking forward to this. Jason Galloway will be here from the Wisconsin State Journal, beat reporter for Wisconsin, really zero in. And in fact, we're going to start off the 5 o'clock hour with that. But right now, let's go to Brandon Myers, former Hawkeye. And parlayed it into a long NFL career, Iowa's own Brandon Myers. Brandon, how are you doing today? Good, Sharon. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, certainly excited to talk about your career. <clears throat> it really is the stuff of legend. A guy that didn't get an offer until late in the process, made your way over to Iowa City, put together a great career, and then played a long time in the NFL. So before we uh, talk about what's going on today and what you're up to these days, let's go all the way back to your career at PCM Monroe, uh, just down the road from us here in Des Moines, and how it started up. You were committed to the University of Northern Iowa. Looked like that you, you was where you're going to end up. So take us through that process and, and how you, very late in the process, became an Iowa Hawkeye. Yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a very strange process, process that's for sure. Um, coming from a small school, uh, having a basketball background a little bit, I thought that maybe basketball would be my route. And uh, just traveling around, doing a lot of AAU tournaments and stuff like that. Uh, football at the time, when I was early in high school, really wasn't on my radar. Uh, I was good at it, obviously. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, coming from a small school, you know, I kind of play every sport. And... Uh, I went to a camp in uh, Indianapolis, the uh, Nike All-American camp. Uh, you got to be invited to be there. And um, I was two of uh, two Iowa guys. And once I was there, I was playing against some, some guys that were NBA caliber players. And I kind of realized from that moment on that maybe if I wanted to continue playing basketball, uh, it, it wouldn't be very very long career. So uh, I kind of took football a little more serious. And uh, started doing some camps, um, kind of getting my name out there as much as I could. I was kind of late to the game, uh, rec- recruiting. Now, you know, back then it didn't start as early as it as it does now, but um, just trying to get my name out there. And um, you know, it, it came down to came down to the end. Uh, Iowa, Iowa was uh, was looking at me to walk on, and uh, it was one of the things where I. Uh, kind of told my parents that I was going to make them pay for college. <laughs> so you and I came in with a full-ride offer, and from, uh, 
once they once they said that, you know, I was all about it. And then uh, old Kirk Ferentz came calling, and I was one of them lifelong dreams. Uh, it was still a tough decision because I give my word to Coach Farley and the Panthers. Uh, it just happened to be that the day before uh, signing day was a snow day, and my mom, so I had to go to school. My mom took off work, and she kind of came in the room and, and sat down and talked to me and, uh, you know, she knew that I really wanted to be a Hawkeye, but I gave gave uh, Coach Farley my word. So she kind of she kind of made me realize that I had to follow my heart, and uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for her for doing that. And uh, the rest is history. It, it is, and and I believe there was something going on. When did you get that phone call from Coach Ferentz? Was it? Well, help my memory out as we're going back a ways. We're we're getting a little old here, Brandon. But oh yeah, absolutely. What, what was it the the morning of signing day, or maybe the day before that you got the phone call and somebody I would thought they had fell through? <clears throat> uh, I think it was a couple days before okay. actually that they they offered me. Um, yeah, they they were kind of giving me the well, we're waiting to see about this guy, about this guy, and uh, I think those kind of fell through. Um, so yeah, it just kind of, the, the pieces kind of fell in my favor and, uh, man, I'm, I'm so thankful that, you know, they offered me, even though if it was two days before or, or an hour before, it really didn't matter to me. Um, you know, it was always a dream growing, growing up as a kid in Iowa to play for the Hawkeyes and run out of the tunnel. So your first couple of seasons, see a little bit of playing time, but really, catapulted forward your junior and senior seasons in 2007 and 2008. Five touchdown grabs as a junior, four more, along with 34 catches as a senior. Very talented tight end group that you were also playing with at that time. Tell us what it takes to be a Hawkeye tight end and the great guys that you played with and guys that have come through the program (laughs) under Kirk Ferentz. Yeah, so coming in, you know, as a small-town kid, I was always the best best athlete, and I didn't have to work as hard. And uh, once I got to Iowa, I realized real quick that the uh, the talent level, not just the tight end room, but everywhere, you know, everybody is is really good athletes. Everybody uh, is strong, fast, physical, or whatever. But um, just just the tight end room in itself, you know, I was I was behind Scott Chandler, Tony Moyaki, Ryan Majerus. CJ Barkman, those guys really, uh, you know, everybody kind of pushed each other. And if you look at it, there's three guys I named there played in the NFL and, and played meaningful snaps and, and stuck around for a while. So, uh, you know, I think I give all the credit to the world, uh, Coach Ferentz, Coach Doyle. Um, you know, everything I really have, I, I owe to them. You know, they I came in there probably knucklehead for a little while and, uh, they kind of taught me the Iowa way, and um, I just had to learn from the guys in front of me and kind of and kind of take a backseat role and just learn. And uh, actually, I forgot about one guy, uh, Tony Jackson. He was he was actually I think it was a senior um, when I was a freshman, and I really looked up to him. He really helped me out a lot. But uh, the whole room in itself, uh, everybody just kind of pushes each other, and there's a there's a higher expectation uh, going to Iowa as a tight end. And, um, you know, it was a great experience. So your senior year, it culminates with the victory over South Carolina in the Outback Bowl. But as we await the Hawks this week and their night game against Wisconsin in Kinnick Stadium, you had a pretty historic night game yourself uh, with Penn State 
in town. They came in ranked number three in the country, and you guys pulled off the victory there. Take us back, a night game environment, just what it's like to play in Kinnick Stadium under the lights. Uh, to play in Kinnick is special, but to play at Kinnick at night under the lights is, um, I still get chills thinking about it. Uh, you know, it, it was a great experience. You know, it gives the, the students and the fans a little bit, a little time to, to get primed up and to get loud. Uh, one thing I won't forget about that game was how cold it was. And, uh, you know, we had a pretty good thing going there with Sean Green running the ball. And we kind of, I think we got off to a fast start there. He had a couple good runs. And, you know, Kenick was electric the rest of the night. So, uh, yeah, it was just a great experience, something I'll never forget. Uh, whatever, I see that game on, uh, like, the Big Ten Network. Whatever we're watching, I make my wife stop uh, changing the channel, and we have to watch it for a while. It was a great one, no doubt about it. And uh, Sean Green, you mentioned his performance, that drive late in the game to set up the field goal. Certainly a great one. Well, with that, we're looking back. You go on to the NFL and uh, put together a very long career. You play eight years in the league. Tampa, uh, you were in Oakland to begin things, uh, a season with the Giants in the middle the NFL, how different is the grind compared to what you're going through when you're in college? Uh, I would say it's it's definitely different. Uh, the way Iowa runs things, it, it prepared me for the NFL. Um, just the schedule, uh, kind of how practices is ran. But, um, but yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing for me was just being away from home. And now that now that I'm there, you know, it's my job. So maybe at Iowa where you got to be at weightlifting at this time, you, you got to do this and that, but maybe you weren't doing the extra stuff. But as a pro, uh, you, you really, I mean, that's what you get paid to do. So, so any free time you get, you, you make time throughout the day. Uh, it's just the little things, you know, just the film work, maybe getting uh, massages, um, maybe hanging out with your, your quarterback, kind of getting a feel for him. Uh, I had a few of them there to begin with in Oakland, so it was, just felt like it was a revolving door. So, you know, we were always switching offenses and, and head coaches and position coaches. So, um, you know, the, the, the big thing for me was I was behind a Pro Bowl guy in Zach Miller when I first got there, and Tony Stewart was a vet. And once again, I kind of just, just – took little things from each of their game and how they went about it being a pro. And I just kind of put that into my daily routine. So definitely the biggest thing, uh, transition for me was just, uh, that, you know, it was my job and every, every waking moment, not just in the season, but in the off season, you know, you have your time to relax, but, uh, you got to always make sure that you're in shape. Uh, you know, you're catching balls, you're in the playbook, learning new things. So, that was uh, the biggest thing for me. But like I said, Iowa really prepared me football-wise for the NFL. Um, you know, I, just thought, I thought they did a great job. It was a pretty seamless transition. Brandon, when you uh, look at the Hawkeyes today and mention the night matchup with Wisconsin coming up this week, what, uh, what, how often do you get to see the Hawks play now uh, during your days? Uh, now that I'm retired, I see them every Saturday. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> when I was in Oakland there for a while, it was pretty tough with the time change. We always had practice on walkthroughs and stuff like that on Saturday. Uh, I definitely follow them. You know, I always enjoyed getting the, the swag bag from the football office, wearing my Hawkeye shirt on Saturday. 
uh, you know, talking trash to the guys. But no, I, I, de- I definitely, uh, I follow them a lot. You know, uh, it's a part of me. It's, it's who I am. You know, every, like I said before, everything I have, I really owe to Coach Ferentz and Coach Doyle and the whole staff at Iowa for, for putting me in a position to succeed. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for them. When you look at uh, the Iowa tight ends, Noah Fant, he's kind of that hybrid guy you see a lot more now at the NFL level, almost like a, a big wide receiver out there. And then TJ Hawkinson, what do you see about the out of those two current tight ends for the Hawks? Uh, first of all, they're fun to watch. I love how uh, how the coordinator gets in the ball a lot. You know, it's all as a tight end. You know, we're always open. Uh, we do a lot of the dirty things. Uh, you know, I, I see those guys performing well on Saturday. It's fun. You know, you see a lot of tight ends that maybe can just run down the field, catch the ball. Uh, in our offense, we ask them to block, pass, protect, and do all that. And I see those guys doing it week in, week out. So, you know, it is fun to watch, uh, to see them grow. You know, no offense. You know, he gets, he gets a lot of the pub, you know, as he should. Uh, but, you know, I just think... You know, looking back um, um, on our room, I see a lot uh, in their room. You know, they got guys that can kind of do everything, and uh, they're just really, really gifted athletes, and they're great players. Well, uh, with that, are you still down in Tampa after your football retirement? You back home in Iowa? What are you up to these days? Actually, I live in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Uh, my wife and I we have a we have a little son, Carson. He's uh, 15 months. Uh, was playing a little golf, of course. So I, my golf game was getting pretty good there for a while. But yeah. now I, uh, <laughs> there's a the local high school down the road, uh, the Liberty uh, Lions, or six eight team here in Arizona. I uh, decided that I might as well uh, get into coaching a little bit, get my feet wet, and it's been a great experience. You know, they uh, they're the they're the biggest class here in Arizona. We actually just played a team from California, uh, undefeated. And um, you know it's been uh, it's been great passing my knowledge on to the kids and uh, giving them my experiences. Uh, you know I think it means a lot to them. It means a lot to me. You know just to be able to get back and they're young kids. We've all been there and they're they're impressionable. So you just you gotta set a standard and um, you know it, it's been great. Brandon, it's been great talking with you here today. Really enjoy it. Looking forward to uh, watching, obviously, the Hawkeyes and, and seeing Carson in a uniform coming up here in about 18 years or so. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Thanks for having <laughs> me. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Brandon. Excellent conversation with Brandon Myers. Love uh, talking with the former Hawks and clones here, and uh, a real good one there. Put together a great career. I remember watching him play basketball at the high school level. You know, that undersized guy, you think, figure maybe he goes to the MVC, plays D2 basketball, whatever it may have been. He was excellent on the hardwood, but taking those skills, parlaying them into football, and eight years as a pro, really, really cool story as we get ready for Iowa-Wisconsin, the big game this week. Another Hawkeye, I'll be keeping his eye on that. We're keeping our eye on a break, coming back with more. Taking you up until 6 o'clock, it's Jimmy B and TC. Welcome back as we continue on, taking you up until 6 o'clock tonight. It's Jimmy B and TC on 1700 KBGG. As we do each and every week, happy to welcome on our buddy from ESPN. Watch him on SportsCenter. He is Zubin Mahente as he joins us here today. Zubin, what's a good word? 
Not much, guys. How you doing? Everything's good here in Iowa, of course, getting ready for the big game in the state, 730 on a competing network of yours, though, over on Big Fox. <laughs> it's Iowa, Wisconsin. The anticipation certainly is palpable, but, you know, that loss from the Badgers to BYU took a lot of the uh, the national juice, it feels like, out of this one. Yeah, I think the steam certainly has kind of gone out of the engine for that game, mostly just because, like you said, of what Wisconsin had done. But I think if you're an Iowa fan, just for the purposes of your audience, I mean, it's terrific news. I mean, people didn't really know what to think about Scott Frost. I think a lot of people felt what Frost said was right, which was get us this year because we're coming, meaning in years in the future the West is going to be a lot more competitive and Nebraska is going to be right back in the mix where they weren't with Coach Riley. But obviously, you know, he got himself into a pickle here. You know, when you name a starter that early, it just goes to show how different things are, uh, Trent. You know, it's one of those situations where I think in years past, you know, it's very rare these days to see a Tyler Cornelius at Oklahoma State who's just going to wait, wait, wait. It's very rare to see a Blake Sims who's going to wait, a Jake Coker who's eventually going to transfer and then wait. Um, and as soon as Adrian Martinez got the job, Gebbia said, I'm out of here, and then suddenly you're left with a walk-on transfer quarterback. So I think Nebraska's coming but their short-term future looks obviously bleak. They've lost six in a row going back to last year. First 0-2 starts since 1957, so that's good for Iowa. And obviously, uh, this loss to BYU clearly puts Iowa in the driver's seat. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say, because this is just such a week-to-week sport, and you just don't know. Um, it's evidenced by how good Iowa looked against Ohio State last year and how poorly they played against Wisconsin. But it does certainly seem like, I'm not, I'm not going to go ahead and say this is a one-game season for the Hawks, but I would say it's pretty close. The only reason I won't go out and say it's a one-game season is because Iowa, to me, especially right now at the quarterback position, um, I was expecting a little bit more, but then again, it's a small sample size. Um, they just have not shown over the course of time. It's, it's funny, Trent. Wisconsin is the sort of team, like, had they entered this game undefeated in one, I would say, okay, lock it up for the Badgers. After a 13-0 regular season last year, they're just uber-consistent. Um, I just think with Iowa – they are capable of playing an outrageously great game and then just falling right back down <laughs> to earth. So I think it's a, it's a one-game season in the minds of many, but because this team isn't as consistent as, say, Wisconsin or Clemson or Alabama or Ohio State, um, I'm not willing to go there all the way, but I'm pretty close to saying it's a one-game season. It really feels that way. Wisconsin losing to BYU, a head-scratcher. But that's what makes uh, college athletics great. Another head-scratcher, Zubin, is what happened to your alma mater. Rutgers gets beat by Kansas. That in its own right, not overly shocking. But to beat in the fashion that they were, what's going on with your Scarlet Knights? It's a great question. You know, I think there's a lot of people saying that they're going to fire their head coach. I don't think they are. That seems to be a very popular opinion that obviously anybody that loses to Kansas 55-14 probably shouldn't have the job on Sunday, right? Much less have the job next year. But, uh, you know, look, he signed a uh, five-year, $9.8 million contract, Chris Ash, the head coach. Um, that's a lot of money, and he just signed it. And they played fairly well last year to their standards. I mean, three Big Ten wins is nothing to shake a stick at or whatever, but it's one of those things where they'll take it, considering their place in the Big Ten. But I think when you sign a five-year, $9.8 million contract, it's going to be very, very difficult to move on. Um, I had heard that this was the most embarrassing loss in school history. It certainly has got to be right there. And considering nobody's been playing football longer than Rutgers, it makes it doubly worse when you really think about it, <laughs> considering <laughs> they played the first game ever contested. Um, but I think that they're fine in terms of 
who their coach is. Now, I'm not saying I'm fine with it. I just think for people that think they're going to upend Chris Ash and move him out, I just think the financial commitment is too great. The athletic director, Patrick Hobbs, who gave him that deal, certainly doesn't want to back out. You know, this isn't a rich private school. This is a state school that has the same issues that every other state school certainly has right now, funding, et cetera. So while I think this is a huge black eye and a gigantic embarrassment, I actually do feel good for David Beatty because I think he's been really put in an extremely difficult spot. And if they continue to play with this sort of moxie, I'm not saying how many more games they can win because obviously the quality of competition in the Big 12 is a little bit greater than what you're going to get with Rutgers. But if he makes Jeff Long have to make a decision, and I think if I'm Jeff Long heading into that game Saturday, Trent, I'm like, all right, we'll see what happens here. Maybe he'll finish with two wins, three wins this year, and I'll just move my guy in. I'll get whoever I want to get in here and rebuild this thing the way I want to do it with my vision. But I think the best thing that Beatty can do is make this really, really tough, make it really, really, really tough on um, him to make this call. Uh, but in terms of my alma mater, Trent, I would just say that uh, while I certainly think most fan bases wouldn't put up with this, and I certainly think there's a segment of the fan base that just feels like they'll never live this loss down, and, and I think they're justified to feel that way, um, I don't think he's going anywhere because of the parameters of what's been put in place. I've, I've often said this. I said this to somebody yesterday. Um, the only way I think they're going to be able to make it back is to be able to rehire uh, Greg Schiano. And the way Ohio State's going right now, as you well know, um, he's probably going to end up getting another job by this time next year. I think he's going to be a head coach in the Power Five uh, somewhere else because I think Ohio State is headed to the playoff and their defense holds up. I think he's going to move on and do bigger and better things. But uh, there's a lot of politics there. He was very, very tight with the head coach, Kyle Flood, who was uh, pushed out after some very acrimonious circumstances regarding grades. And I think Greg is very loyal to him, and I think he's very upset with the way Flood was pushed out. So I think if you're an Iowa fan and you're keeping tabs in Ohio State, you'll probably see Shiano coaching again this time next year, just probably not at the place a lot of people wish he was. <laughs> no doubt. Big picture, Zubin, as we see the continued changing in television demographics. When the Big Ten Network got started, we know about the carriage fees that they have, not just in Big Ten territory, but across the country. Rutgers, Maryland, certainly made sense with the, with the bases that they have and the population bases that surround those universities. As you look forward, could there be a time where the Big Ten looks back and says, not only was this a bad decision, we're going to go in a different direction. Could, could you see that as a possibility? And is that a concern at all for a program like Rutgers? I don't think they would relegate them to use a soccer term, <laughs> or I don't think they would extract them or contract them to use a Major League Baseball term. I think that's just too extreme if nothing outside of on-field performance is considered. I think the only way you're going to get the uh, extraction from the league is if something nefarious were to happen. Um, and obviously, unfortunately, as you know, in college athletics, we've seen that quite a bit, from SMU to Baylor to Penn State to Michigan State. And obviously, there's you know, point-shaving scandals in Arizona State. There's issues like that, I think, are basically tantamount to getting thrown out of a league. And obviously, I just mentioned all those examples, and none of those teams, SMU is a little bit of a different story because college athletics has changed so much. But you know, Penn State and Michigan State are firmly in the Big Ten, and Arizona State's not going anywhere. Um, but I think it would have to be something to the extent level that would just shock people beyond the sports world to even consider that. And I think that could happen. I mean, obviously, I'm hoping it doesn't happen to anybody, any school, anywhere. But I think other than something happening off the field, I don't think they're going to be asked to be moved out of the league. I think you have to look at it from a two-pronged approach. 
I think most people look at it and say Maryland and Rutgers have been a disappointment. Rutgers has been a far bigger disappointment. But it was the risk-reward for the league. The league made the decision based on what they know at the time. Look, if I, if I could have invested in Google 15 years ago or Netflix 10 years ago, I would have done it. <laughs> if I could have got on board with Jeff Bezos and Amazon on day one, I would have done it. Or if I could have invested in vitamin water, I would have done it. But it's one of those things where the league looked at it and said, we have to crystal ball this. You know, we are in a rough belt area. Our population demographics are shifting. The hottest growing places in the country are the southeast and the mountain west region, Nevada, Arizona, and most of the southeast. People are leaving the Midwest. We need to make sure we can expand our footprint. And at that time, I think if you look at the parameters at that time, it feels like a weird geographical fit. But, yeah, West Virginia feels like a weird geographical fit in the Big 12. They had to look at it from a business perspective and say, at this time, in order for us to grow, because remember, at the time, remember, they're going a tete-a-tete with the SEC, who's bigger, who's badder, who's got a bigger television network, who's got a bigger reach, who has more passionate alumni. And I think they just felt like, in most businesses, as you know, bigger is better. And in this case, bigger would be spreading its wings and reaching a larger footprint, getting into an area of the country where there are a ton of Big Ten alums. To bring Rutgers into the Big Ten solely wasn't about Rutgers. I mean, there's Michigan fans everywhere. There's Ohio State fans everywhere. There's Penn State fans everywhere. You well know you could have a Hawks gathering pretty much anywhere in a major city mm-hmm. in the country, and people will show up. The other thing I would quickly say on the other side, Trent, nobody really talks about it because it's a very minor situation, but you have to look at it from Rutgers' standpoint. Rutgers is in the Big East. They were in the AAC. They were in no man's land, and suddenly someone swooped in and said, hey, how would you like to join the Big Ten? And if we get to a point where there's a super conference, let's just say with 64 teams, they eliminate the Power Five and they all go there, that's going to be the ultimate in or out. Never mind Boise being in the Mountain West or any of these things, or how can some of these teams upgrade, or it's a Power Seven basketball conference in the Big East. If we ever get to a point where it's strictly these 64 and everyone else, Rutgers knows on its merits there's no way that they could qualify probably for that 64. So if somebody's going to come in and put a helicopter over the university and drop an escape ladder, (laughs) Rutgers can grab onto the ladder and climb into the helicopter, they're going to take it. So most of the coverage, as you said, has been put forth by why it was beneficial to the Big Ten. But when Rutgers was dropped with that opportunity, Trent, that's like someone offering you a lottery ticket and saying, hey, actually, this is the Powerball. I just saw it on the news. Why don't you go cash this baby in? It's yours. I think from Rutgers' standpoint, that's how they saw it. And I don't think people realize it's always a two-way street. The minute Rutgers was offered it, they were going to take it. And in that case, I'm not sure what the Big Ten could have done because Rutgers was probably offered something they just could not refuse and probably thought they could not get elsewhere anywhere. Zubin, uh, you mentioned Michigan, and they take on Nebraska this week. A big game in terms of name recognition, but well, that's about it from the uh, product currently on the field. In the future, maybe we'll get something better. But this is rekindling a lot of memories of 21 years ago. Zubin, Nebraska, Michigan, the split national title of 1997. Your thoughts on that? And if we ever did get that game, who would have won? That's a great point. You know, I I believe that game is actually on Fox Saturday morning. Um, I kind of wish it was on ESPN because I think it would have been great, great to have Greasy on the call. You know, Mm, I think it would have been just... Perfect. And we could have gotten Woodson involved from the NFL aspect. We could have ripped him off Sunday NFL countdown for a day to do something with that. Um, but obviously, alas, that is no problem. Um, can't be done because I think the game is at Fox at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, believe it or not. I think there's a, like an 11.30 a.m. Eastern kick. Very hard to say who would have won that game. 
I think there is some sentimental nature. I don't know. I'm trying to remember back 21 years. I seem to recall, I don't know if you do, that a lot of people thought, again, now this is just, uh, this is just something that I'm shooting from the hip here. I don't really have to, have to go back and really dig into it. But I seem to recall that that championship for Osborne, to many people, um, was a thanks for everything, here's one on the way out the door kind yeah. of thing. Not that they didn't deserve to be a championship team, not that they weren't a championship team, not that they didn't have a great quarterback, but the idea simply being that um, we know you're kind of done or you're going to be done soon. You've done amazing things for the sport. Um, obviously, there was a, you know, the Lawrence Phillips situation happened. But generally speaking, I think if you ask most college football fans what they think of Tom Osborne outside of the state of Nebraska, where obviously he's a legend, but even outside the, the state's borders, I think a lot of people would tell you he exemplified what was right with college football in many ways, not that Phillips situation, but what was right with the sport in general, how he comported himself, how they went for the win against Miami, all of those sorts of things. And I'm not saying that they would ever do this, but I think there was some sort of sentimental nature of, you know what, um, how great would it be if we gave this to him on the way out the door, knowing that this team was deserving too, but it was the extra little oomph that we could give him to give him one more championship. Obviously, what's crazy about that trend is, I believe, I would, I'm just trying to think about this, because the BCS started in 98, um, to a degree, I mean, obviously, I know there was some sort of disagreement between Oklahoma and USC in the early 2000s, but, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the split national title. When you get to the BCS age and the college football play, playoff era, um, it's, just, it's just something that has never been done since. I just, obviously, we're at a point now where we're not going to see anything like that uh, anymore. And it just goes to show you that it, there are a certain time trend that these two teams are both vying to be a national championship contender. You asked me who I think would win. And we just have to sit, literally just shrug our shoulders, throw our hands up in the air and say, I don't know, they're not going to meet. And in 1997 and 1998, it sounds bizarre, but like, people were like, well, that's just college football. Like, I mean, right. Can you imagine now with everything we've done with the BCS and the playoff and the plus one and the bowl alliance to get to this point? I can't imagine in today's day and age people could sit there, look at Nebraska, look at Michigan and say, I mean, why do they just play? <laughs> why do they just play? And I think back even just 20 years ago, not like a million years ago, 20 years ago, people had just resigned themselves to the faith that, like, well, they're not playing. So I guess they're both champions. Which, and if you fast forward 20 years, the way that we decide things today, I think that would be looked at as very, very peculiar. It's, it is. An oddity that luckily we won't see outside of those group of five teams like Central Florida. And they can claim national championships even if they weren't actually crowned one. And I don't have a problem with that, Zubin. I, I know there's still people that, that get rankled and get fired up about it. They won every game on their schedule. They beat Auburn in a big bowl game. I don't got a problem with them putting putting their name out there and say they're national champions. They're the only team without a loss, at least. No, I don't either. And I think this is one of those things where this is more for branding. I think if you're Central Florida, you look at it and say, Boise has been able to do this in a sustained fashion, right? Boise's been able to do this in a sustained fashion. Texas Christian kind of used to be Boise, then they got into the Big 12, so it got a little bit different. But we've seen teams have those, those ebbs, right? Hawaii had an ebb with Colt Brennan, haven't really been able to do it consistently. Um, you know, Fresno State had a little bit with Pat Hill, then it ebbed, might be coming back now with Jeff Tedford. But really, Boise is the only school right now that has really been able to say, consistently, right? Houston had an opportunity. All these teams have had an opportunity. Boise's been the one. And I think Central Florida looks at themselves right now, going back to our first question of, what's the best thing we can do right now? Like, 
expanding the Big Ten, as you talked about when Jim Delaney made that decision. I think if you're UCF, you say to yourself, there is no reason we can't be Boise right now. Think about where we are. We're 13-0. and We're in central Florida. We're in Orlando. We have a really nice stadium for the size of our league. We're in a pretty good league. We can play decent competition like South Florida, like other teams, like Memphis that can get us on the map. We have a Heisman Trophy winner, excuse me, Heisman Trophy candidate that just finished in the top 10. Very quietly, Mackenzie Milton finished in the top 10. Nobody's talking about it. We have a hot coach at the time in Scott Frost. So why don't we strike while the iron is hot and make sure we can maximize our attention? Do they really think they're champs? I don't know. They did have the parade. They did do all that stuff. They even rankled Nick Saban, which shows you obviously that their mission was somewhat successful because other people started talking about it as big as Nick Saban is in the sport. But I think they look at it and say, all right, what's our window? Uh, we have this next guy in, Heupel. Hopefully he'll be as good as Frost. But even if he isn't, we got maybe one of the best players in the history of the program playing the most important position for us right now. We're in a great state. Miami's struggling. Florida's struggling. Florida State is struggling. Clearly no top-shelf recruit is going to choose them. Excuse me, choose us over them. But we can get in the mix for a lot of guys. People want to go to places that are winning. They have a gigantic student enrollment. I believe it's upwards of forty or 50,000 yeah. people that go to UCF. It can be a really big deal. So I don't fault them because I think part of them knows it's not really serious, but part of them knows this is the sort of free pub with this sort of transcendent season that they'll never probably be able to replicate. So why not just grab as much as you can, as far as you can? Trent, I almost equate it to like being in a boy band. Right? You're like 15 or 16. By the time you're 22 or 23, you're washed up. <laughs> so you might as well just use the three or four or five years you're in the boy band, go to every mall, sign every autograph, play every arena, and then by the time six or seven years come around and you're too old and you're too played out and you're not culturally relevant anymore, you can relax with that $15 million you made going from tour stop to tour stop to tour stop. So I think a lot of it is just strike while the iron's hot, and that's exactly what UCF is trying to do. And if they rankle some people in the process, so what? <laughs> Not a big thing. Not a big thing at all. Zubin, we'll let you go with this over to uh, the other football that you keep a close eye on, and that's obviously the National Football League. When the schedule came out and I looked at Monday Night Football Week 3 and I said, oh, look at this dud. Pittsburgh, well, at least we'll get to see the Steelers and that high-powered offense and Le'Veon Bell against the decrepit Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then it goes another step without Jameis Winston. And my favorite story of the NFL season has been Fitz. Fitz coming out in the Deshaun Jackson gears, got the gold chains going. Break up those Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Never know what you're going to get in the NFL. Yeah, I think for Monday Night Football, I think the ratings have kind of shown across the board, even the Sunday night game. Uh, if you saw the Dallas Cowboys, the NFL's crown jewel franchise, last Sunday they had one of their lowest rated local games, local games in Dallas, in the DFW, like if you were tabulating how Iowa and Iowa State would do in the Des Moines metro area or out in Cedar Rapids. They had one of their lowest outputs since about 2009. Now, granted, the game was extremely boring. Uh, the Giants are incredibly boring, and I have no idea other than market size why they continue to show up on national TV all the time. But that was one of the lowest-rated games uh, in years, even in the Metroplex. And that is not cause for concern, but I think you have to raise your eyebrow. But I think what's ended up happening, Trent, is it's pretty clear that unless it's your team or the game is uber-compelling, People are just not watching the way they used to. Now, you might watch the Bears game Monday night because you are a huge Bears fan. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and Ken might watch because he loves football. But in week four, the game is going to be Kansas City at Denver, 
We got lucky there. Great couple storylines. You got Patrick Mahomes for 10 touchdowns, no picks. Who knows what he'll do this Sunday against Von Miller, AFC West. He's the hottest young kid in football. Great storyline. Pittsburgh, what's going on with Antonio Brown? What's going on with Le'Veon Bell? What's going on with Ryan Fitzpatrick? It's a great storyline. So even if you're not a Steelers fan, and boy, there are tons of Steelers fans, and even if you're not a Bucks fan, the Bucks are averaging under 60,000 fans uh, a game. Now, granted, they haven't played a ton of home games, obviously, but you know, that's another stadium that's suffering. The Redskins, uh, over the weekend, had their, I think this has been ended long ago, but the team tried to stretch it out. I'm sure you know teams try to do this all the time. Um, they had their 50-year sellout streak in. They had 53,107 people at their game in a stadium that seats like 80,000 people. Mm. And, again, that had been struggling for a while. They'd been able to kind of keep it up, you know, giving away tickets and doing all that sort of stuff. But it's just coming to the forefront that even if it's the Dallas Cowboys, a team like that, the Pittsburgh Steelers, who you'll see on Monday night, Patrick Mahomes the following Monday night, who's taken fantasy owners and regular owners <laughs> by storm. If it's not a compelling game or it's not your team, it is getting harder and harder and harder for people to watch a game. Not me. I love it. I do it for a living. Not yep. you. You love it. You do it for a living. But it's one of those things where, and by the way, every week the NFL puts out a statement saying, top five shows on TV this week. By the way, NFL, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> so for people that think the NFL is dying, uh, it's still capturing people on TV more than any other thing could even hope to. So I think the league knows exactly where it stands with the television viewer. But it does have to sit back and realize and say, we used to be able to put any two teams on the Sunday CBS doubleheader, America's Game of the Week on Fox, Monday Night Football or Sunday Night Football, and if we gave them two good teams and two good windows, Mm -hmm. we could guarantee 20 million people are going to watch. And you cannot, maybe other than Sunday Night Football, and if it's like the packs on CBS, it is very difficult, maybe the Cowboys on Fox, very few examples where you can guarantee 20 million. I'll tell you a guy that used to bring 20 million to the table, Trent, all the time, with Peyton Manning. I don't think people are, I think people are underestimating how much his loss has hurt the league in terms of just a couple of million viewers here or there, but a guy that can bring a couple million viewers to the table is incredible. So we'll hope for a good one next Monday night because one of the boxes is checked, the great storylines box with Fitzpatrick, and then the following week we'll have Mahomes in Denver, and if he continues to play the way he is, I think that'll check the great storyline box too. So I'm optimistic. Zubin, appreciate the time, and uh, we will talk again next week. You be good. And I did tell Ken earlier today, you weren't ducking him earlier this week because of your Scarlet Knights. He liked that. He liked I am that. embarrassed, but not. I'm embarrassed, but not shamed. So I'll be back with you and him next week. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Zubin. Thanks, guys. Zubin Behente with us, ESPN Sports Center. As we get the timeout, back on the other side, we're talking to the voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, Mitch Holtis. Up next. Trent, kind of back with you as we put a cap on our number one. Still another hour to go. We'll hear from Wisconsin beat writer Jason Galloway. He's going to be joining us coming up here to begin the next hour. Not going to want to miss that. Getting that Badger perspective before the game at Kinnick Stadium on Saturday night. We will get to that right at the beginning of the 5 o'clock hour. Tonight, Thursday night football here on 1700 KBGG. The Cleveland Browns looking for that looking for that first victory. They face off against the Jets. We saw them Monday Night Football in Week 1, what they did to the Lions. Slap in reality a week ago, but hey, you could be getting Bud Light. If you're in Cleveland and you're by one of those coolers, you might get yourself some free beer. They got to get the victory. They're a favorite. I think I read today 
And somebody out there, correct me if I got this wrong, and I unfortunately don't have it in front of me. My notes, for whatever reason, one of the things that I saved them in didn't save today. So that was one of the things that I missed. But I do remember reading it, and I want to say this is the first time the Cleveland Browns have been favored at home since 2015. Guys, this I mean, it's just incredible. The numbers. Hugh... 1 and 31 over the two years now has extended that 132 and 1 with the tie and the loss and, and opportunities. Cleveland's getting better. It does look weird though, looking at the point spread and seeing Cleveland as a favorite. It hasn't happened at home since 2015. Good Lord. Absolutely incredible. That'll get our football started for the week, Friday high school football, and a pretty good college slate too. Coming up on Friday evening, really looking forward to that. We'll preview and make our predictions on the programs tomorrow, but not bad. Jets, Browns, I can get into that. College tonight, is there anything? Tulsa Temple? Go American? American made? Eh, I'm out. Let's talk Iowa-Wisconsin. We're doing that next. Joining us, the beat writer from the Wisconsin State Journal. He's Jason Galloway next on Jimmy B and TC.